Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The life journey for everybody from a kid onwards is to find out who you are, because you only find that out through experiencing things. I realized what the distance between a Western culture and an Indian culture was. It's about three inches, which was the thickness of our front door. Because once I went out of that front door, how you engaged was different. The morality was different. The values were different. Just think about the people around you and just try to have a think about whether you think they're good for you or not. Because toxicity is something that grows. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Our guest today is the talented English comedian, actor, television presenter, and someone who always knew they wanted to be a comedian. Perhaps originally best known for his work in the BBC Two sketch comedy series, Goodness Gracious Me, and the star of the sitcom The Kumars at number 42. He landed the role in the Goodness Gracious Me program, which began originally on the radio in 1996 and was later adapted for TV, becoming an instant hit with fans at every age and background, although particularly within the South Asian communities, as it was the first of its kind. From that point, his career went up from strength to strength, and he landed roles in Notting Hill, The Guru, Ananita and Me. He is now a household name within British television. In 2003, he was listed in The Observer as one of the 50 funniest acts in British comedy. Two years following, in 2005, the actor was an honoured with the title OBE and in the same year married his co-star, one of UK's best-known Asian personalities in her own right, English comedian, writer, playwright, singer, journalist, producer and actor Mira Sayal. His more dramatic acting roles include the lead role of Dr. Prem Sharma in The Indian Doctor and as D.I. Sunny Khan in Unforgotten, which is currently out and into its fourth series as a top-rated programme. He is also currently the Chancellor of the University of Sussex. As part of the BBC series of programmes on the 60th anniversary of the independence of India and Pakistan, he filmed a documentary series called India with Sanjeev Busker with director Deep Segal. This included an emotional and moving journey to his father's ancestral home, which is now Pakistan. His first book, titled The Same as the Series, India with Sanjeev Busker, is based on the documentary series and became a Sunday Times bestseller in 2007. Although he always knew he wanted to be a comedian, it wasn't a career choice favoured by his parents, who encouraged him to continue his education. He listened, and I might hastily add, 
like a good Indian boy, and earned himself a degree in marketing before landing a job as a marketing executive at IBM. However, he soon realized that he preferred comedy to marketing and joined forces with an old college friend, Nitin Swani, to start a musical comedy double act called The Secret Asians. A big fan of the Beatles, he also played a major part in the film Yesterday, as well as having countless other roles in film and TV, which I have not included all of here, but it is safe to say my guest, who everyone will of course have already identified, is the one and only Sanjeev Busker. It is such an honour to welcome you to the Elevate podcast. Hello, and a very warm welcome to you, Sanjeev. Well, thank you. Well, hello, and thank you very much for that uh, extraordinarily detailed biography of me. I kind of only vaguely recognise myself in it. Excellent, and there's a lot to celebrate, isn't there? Well, we're talking, we're here. We can celebrate that. <laughs> That's true. This is true. Um, it's been a year for, you, for everyone, obviously, but I gather in the madness of the year that we've all experienced, you've still managed to keep yourself some busy with work. How's that all going? Yeah, we've been one of the lucky ones. We kind of were able to kind of uh, uh, carry on filming uh, bits and pieces. But I think, you know, the most important thing about this year has been uh, one's health and one's mental health in particular. I think that, you know, people who uh, obviously got the virus had to deal with a physical set of challenges that uh, they probably never had to deal with before. Uh, the people around them had to deal with uh, those challenges too. But I think the mental stress of the last year, I think, has been the main thing that has been difficult for everybody. I mean, whether you're a child, whether you're uh, uh, an old person and all points in between, you know, it's that focus on mental health, I think, has been something that hopefully has shifted from being a subconscious, unconscious thing to something very conscious and people are incredibly aware about. Yeah, I think that's an extremely important uh, revelation, really, isn't it? That it's not a it's it is a conscious co conversation now and one that we're all hopefully having more of and able to empathize with others going through different situations. So let's begin a little bit, if you don't mind speaking about your upbringing. I would love to know more about what was life for you like as a young boy growing up in West London, that's where you're from, what you were like as a little boy at school and what your home life was like. Well, we lived above uh, a laundrette or a laundry, uh, which my um, parents owned and ran. So we lived in an apartment above that, didn't have a garden. Uh, it was very small. We had no heating in the house apart from two rooms so in the winter uh, my younger sister and I and my parents would basically live in one room uh, which had the heater in it um, and it, when I look back on it now it felt like it was some sort of strange camping holiday we were in and uh, and I had I have quite fond memories of it and I think looking back I think we, we didn't have double glazing we didn't have central heating uh, but I think that this shared experience, that we all had, we were all in it together, um, I think is what um, my memories are fondest of. You know, we ate together, we watched TV together, um, played games together um, because we kind of had to. But as a kid, uh, I, was, I was very quiet. Um, I loved movies and TV from when I can remember. And I think behind that was that I loved stories. And, and through that, I actually, was really interested in history 
because I suddenly realized quite young that history had the best stories and they were all real. And, you know, they painted a picture of how I was in the world that I was in. And so, and, you know, the stories come initially from history. And so everything, every storyline, whether it's, it's funny, whether it's uh, tragic, whether it's romantic, whether it's noble, uh, all come from history. And, uh, you know, history contains all of it. So uh, I was a kid who, was, who read a lot, but I was very quiet. So you weren't, an, you weren't an extroverted student. You weren't the class clown by any means. I, I, do you know what? I, I think a lot of people did describe me as that. And, uh, and I, think I, it was, I, had, I think I had a different personality outside of the house. I think with my parents, I was a completely different child. And I think that when I did start acting professionally, my mum was really quite surprised. Did you switch personalities? So, so I think I've listened to Riz Ahmed talk about it once uh, with Louis Theroux. I don't know if you've heard that interview, but it was a brilliant uh, thing that he talks about. Maybe when you're an actor, you know it innately and you know how to act a certain different way for different roles. You're always kind of uh, projecting a character. And uh, was that similar for you? Would you have a separate character for yourself at home with your family and then one for school and, and your mates outside of school? Yeah, I think, and I think we all do it. You know, the way that we talk to our parents when we're growing up is very different to the way we talk to our friends. And then once we've grown up, the way we talk to our kids is very different uh, to the way we talk to our bank manager. If anybody uh, or when anybody has been in a situation in an office or in a shop or a store or something uh, where they're not getting the service they expect, um, there's a slightly different personality that you have to call on to deal with that particular situation. Yeah, I guess that's interesting. I think there are probably, and some people might call it confidence and other people might call it a different thing about when they're able to be who they think they are. So what that leads me to ask you then is, when did you realize actually you're quite funny? When was that something that you knew as one of your superpowers? It's, it's interesting that you use the term superpowers because it's something that I believe that every child has to believe they have a superpower. When I look back and think about what superpowers I think I had as a child, I think there were two. I think I knew I was good at communicating. I was good at communicating with, uh, I could talk to anyone. I could talk to people who were older. I could talk to kids my same age as me. I was incredibly shy, but I knew I had the ability to do it. And I knew it was better than most of the kids of my age. And I was more eloquent. I was creative and um, and the other superpower, and this is the weird one, was that I knew that I, I knew more about movies than any other kid that I came across. And the thing was that I couldn't share it because no other kid knew or was as passionate about films as I was, but I knew that I knew more. And, um, and in a way, strange way, that felt like a really secret, private superpower. It was a passion. You know, and the thing is, I was very clear. I didn't know it was the word passion, but I knew I was really into movies and creativity more than anybody else I knew. So was it acting that was the dream for you or were you taken by the storylines more than the heroes of the film? What was it about watching movies that made you feel so passionate? Everything about it. I kind of, you know, the actors, uh, I kind of thought, well, that's amazing. They're, they're conveying something to me. And um, that's brilliant and the writing and I knew that someone had written it and then the way it was shot 
you know, with with movies in particular, you know, what's an edited shot in some way, and uh, and I loved all of it. I loved the way it was put together, and I thought all of that uh, was amazing. And and in a way, I don't think that I found my tribe, which is the other thing is that the the life journey for everybody from a kid onwards is to kind of find out who you are because you only find that out through experiencing things yeah how do you know whether you like the taste of something unless you until you've tasted it i mean you, you know somebody can say hey you know that's, uh, there's a kind of uh, i don't know um beans ice cream and you and as an adult you think oh well, i know beans i know the taste of beans and i know the taste of ice cream you put them together that's that sounds disgusting a kid won't really little kids don't they'll just try it and then spit it out and say that was horrible but they won't just go uh and it's the that sense of discovery i think is something we lose as we get older but it's also the curiosity is kind of what drives us finding out who we are hmm. and how old were you when that happened for you gosh i think probably about 30. Okay. <laughs> All right. There's hope, children. There's hope. If you haven't found your tribe yet, don't worry. Don't lose faith. Look, there's lots of time. There's lots of time to do that. And I think that's an important, you've touched on so many things I would love to be able to expand on. But one of them being the idea that discovery and curiosity as a child and allowing those skills to continually develop. And I think you say that it's getting lost as we get older. I almost think it's getting lost even earlier than when as, as kids get are aging. I think we spoke about this a little bit before we started the interview as well that the world is becoming so reliant we can do everything within two minutes on our devices and I, I worry that that whole idea of seeking and going out to explore for the sake of exploring is, is also getting lost a bit so I think that's a really lovely idealistic way of thinking about growth development and just school and learning you know the school of life as Alan de Botton always talks about I think it's an important one um one of the other things you said earlier which I was a little bit intrigued by when you said that you we all have different personalities when we're in at home and then we have those as we grow older we have different sides of us that portray out forwards I wonder how much of that do you think is cultural for you or what elements of the way you were brought up in an Indian home, North Indian home, and the what was acceptable culturally for what was allowed, what was, you know, in, within the boundaries of the home, what were the expectations of the children? Could you talk to me a little bit about that and what it was like for you as a child? Yeah, I think that that um, made the the personality change um, much more obvious and stark. And I remember saying in an interview once that I kind of realized what the difference between a Western culture and an Indian culture was, the distance between them. I was about three inches, and uh, which was the thickness of our front door. Because once I went out of that front door, the rules were different. The, the, how you engaged was different. The morality was different. The values were different. Uh, and when I came in through that front door, when I came back from school, the values and the vocabulary uh, was different again. And so, you know, learning to move between the two, I think I was able to do very, or I, I certainly was aware of it really, really young. So my, my earliest memory is two and a half and my vivid memories are from about three. And um, hmm, I can remember 
uh, not just incidents when I was three, four, five years old, but I can remember how I felt. I can remember what I thought at the time when I was four or five. And one of the things that I became very protective about uh, in with regards to my parents was that even by about five, I felt that I somehow understood these Western cultural rules better than they did. And so, you know, I very, again, you know, certainly in pre-teen, I remember recognizing a veiled insult to my parents in a way that they would not perceive it. So I knew when they were, you know, being slighted by somebody in a way they didn't. It made me quite protective of them, I think, in that regard. It's incredible that you speak about your superpowers. I think, goodness, from listening to you speak about all of this now, because I was an, an Indian girl growing up in similar circumstances. I don't know if I had that level of self-awareness. I don't know if I probably had the same astuteness as you did to be able to understand this is not right and actually what they're doing is a super strength and i I'm, admire that quality in you and i think it's wonderful that you're able to speak to it well also the, something that kind of crosses between the two in terms of my awareness of both racism and sexism was that again really young i kind of knew that i liked writers and singers and actors and filmmakers who came from completely different backgrounds to me. You know, whether they were African-American, whether they were African, whether they were South American, whether they were Asian, uh, whether they were European. I, you know, I would read their books and I'd watch them on film. And and similarly, between men and women, it, it wasn't that, you know, I looked at uh, um, only male actors and only male filmmakers and only male writers and singers and athletes and that I got my entertainment from. And so I couldn't, I couldn't understand at that, at that age why or how someone could generalize about a, a race. How could someone say all, you know, uh, Indians, all French people, all Italians, how could they say all women? It, it didn't make any sense to me because I thought, look at all the entertainment, the breadth of entertainment alone, let alone then understanding economics and politics and science and everything else, which I learned about uh, when I was older. But just at that level of me being entertained, which, you know, and the, the primary thing and the important thing about entertainment to us personally is that it makes us as, as individuals happy. You know, we hear a song, we read a book, we watch a movie, and it makes us happy. It gives us something. When you kind of then think about who's giving that to you, then how can you generalize about other people who are like that or look that way or sound that way? They're good questions to ask, aren't they? They're important, <laughs> important points to bring up. I would love to know a little bit more about the internal battle between what you thought was going to be your career or what you'd hoped would be your career given all the creative things that you've just shared so uh, passionately about and then the more traditional dare i say acceptable path and i ask this because i think it's a very commonly held conversation within many indian homes particularly and south asian homes about creativity being a hobby not being a career choice and i get i really do understand uh, where this belief and this view comes from especially for immigrant families 
Um, they've worked so hard to provide a new life and an opportunity for their future and their children. And the, the beliefs around that the only way to secure that is by valuing education, one, and then two, allowing that education to get you the job. And I'm going to put job in quotes again, because the job that pays the bills, as you might be able to attest to, is not always guaranteed in the creative arts sector. How did you navigate the two things and tell me a little bit about that journey for you as a, as a young young teenager, young boy? What was it like for you? At what age were you were sort of navigating these two worlds for yourself? I remember an uncle came to the house and, uh, and said, uh, so young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, it's pronounced doctor. And that was <laughs> the really, really early on. Um, messages were very, very clear. Um, but I didn't have the aptitude for it. And um, I, I really tried. I mean, I, I studied the wrong subjects for me because, you know, study the sciences because that's what my parents want me to do. Uh, it was rubbish at biology. So the doctor thing was out of the window. And, um, and I think next on the list was engineer, I think, or a lawyer or an accountant. I think those were the big ones. And, um, and I just, I just wasn't interested enough. And I know other kids who were interested in creativity who did do that and ultimately did become doctors or engineers. And I hope they're really happy, but I don't think it's the job that makes them happy. Uh, I think in the end, it may be other things in their life that have given them that, uh, contentedness. Um, but it's not the job. And, I think for me, I then did, um, I studied maths, physics, and economics, which are just not subjects you would associate with me at all. And so, you know, in the, in the end, I went to do a business degree in marketing because I thought maybe that would please them as well. So everything was about pleasing other people. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I look back on, uh, child, that they weren't supportive at all about any idea about doing something creative, because as you say, that's the hobby. You know, you go and sing in your spare time. And also we didn't have examples uh, in the in the Western media of, you know, people from an Indian background who had made it. I mean, it was it was for us, it was only Bollywood. Bollywood was and we weren't living in India. And also there was an, an idea that they had, which I think, you know, had some truth to it, was that you have to know somebody. They didn't know anybody who was creative that they could go and ask their opinion. So they knew other people who either owned shops or were a doctor or an accountant, or uh, I don't think even think they knew a lawyer, but, uh, um, uh, and so, you know, in terms of the, the pressure on them to advise me was incredibly limited and they didn't have, I don't feel the confidence to go and ask somebody else. And that is something that's very different in in my generation you know uh, apart from me now having done it as a career is that if if my son said he wanted to do something and i didn't understand that area you know i would research it i would go and find out and i don't think they they didn't feel established enough in the uk as immigrants to be able to go and ask somebody i wonder what it was then how and how was it painful for you and what eventually allowed you to pave the way for yourself to stand up to what it is that you wanted to do. 
in terms of me, so I went to university, I joined the drama group, uh, I started writing things, I started performing things. Uh, I met a guy there called Nitin Somi, um, who was studying accountancy at the time. And, but he was really good on the piano and the guitar. And we suddenly shared this interest in creative things. We could talk about films and TV and music and stuff like that, and books. He was very well read. And um, so we then decided, why don't we do something together? You know, because we can do these plays that people are putting on. But none of this reflects our experiences of being both British and of an Asian background as well. So why don't we do that? Because nobody else is doing it. And we can do it with maybe comedy and some music. And so we did something which was quite unique because I think we were, to an audience, we were impossible. It was impossible to predict what we were going to do next because we would do, you know, I would do a sketch where I'd play a character. Um, based on an uncle or something and then Nitin would suddenly play some flamenco and then we would do a sketch together and then I'd sing a song in Italian and 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 part of it was saying to the audience you may look at us as two men who look sort of South Asian you have no idea about us at all and I think that sense of um preconception I think is the heart is at the heart of everything I've ever written and ever created on television. It's all about saying to an audience, uh, don't think that I'm that either me or you know anybody else is like anyone else who looks like me. And so that was something that started there. So then you know uh, I went to work for IBM and um, then various marketing companies. And the last marketing company I worked for, uh, I sued. Uh, for breach of contract, um, they were horrible and uh, um, they wouldn't pay me. And so I sued them and I couldn't get a job for two years because of the um, the, the, the court stuff, the legal stuff that was happening uh, between me and them. And in the end, they, they settled out of court and they paid me because they were always wrong. But uh, for two years, I couldn't get any kind of job at all. So that was incredibly difficult. Uh, because particularly for me and my stupid empathy, uh, you know, I was then 30 and I was at home and I could see in my parents' faces, they were thinking, what did we do wrong? You know, everything we did was to kind of, and here was I, this kind of abject failure. And, and where for me, it was doubly challenging was that I'd failed for them, but I'd also failed for myself because I hadn't. I hadn't done what I wanted to do, and I'd failed at the thing I'd, I was doing for somebody else. So um, uh, uh, so I volunteered at my local hospital for two nights a week. I used to go and volunteer and uh, got involved in a radio station at the hospital. Uh, I did that, wasn't earning, I was in debt. And, um, and then I rang Nitin up, and Nitin had left his job, and he was trying to write uh, a music album as a composer. And I said, look, you're sitting at home doing nothing. So am I. Um, why don't we get together? It'll be fun. You know, we'll hang out, and, but we'll be creative. And, uh, and we did that. And, um, and we both said, look, there's still nobody reflecting our experiences out there. So why don't we put on a show somewhere? And so we started to do that. And in one of the shows that we did, um, uh, at the end of the show, uh, a very two very, very tall, very tall men 
uh, knocked on the door and I'm not tall at all. So I stayed sitting. I thought I'm not getting up. Um, it's like you suddenly find yourself in Shanghai or something. You know, you're just looking around, looking up. And um, and they said, look, we're we're from the BBC and we're we're thinking about doing a, 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 a comedy sketch show. And the material you guys are doing uh, are, the, are the sort of things we're looking for. Would you be interested? And um, and that was a life changing moment. I went along to a meeting with them and then that show became a show called goodness gracious me which was the first thing i did and you, you know and that was i was 33 34 at that point it's it's indeed i'm so moved by this journey i know it's obviously painful and incredibly tough and obviously you called yourself a failure in all of this and you've kind of referred to all the difficult heartache that you must have had but throughout the whole process what comes what shines through your whole journey is how enterprising you were and what incredible perseverance you have so you didn't let yourself wallow in your kind of misery and you went out there did little things whatever they may be but they were things that fed to ultimately the big night where somebody comes and knocks on your door from the bbc i mean that's pretty incredible i i think that um you know at the time when most people are going through difficulties they are trying to get out of them and there are some people who who stop and those people who stop then feel sorry for themselves and they wait for somebody else to change their life and uh, i think any kind of perseverance i got in fact i think anything that's good about me at all has come from my mother all of it and so uh, you know and i thought about my mother and my aunts and my grandmother and you know the women in my family just how incredibly resourceful and forward thinking they were because every time they were presented with the problem they had to find a solution to it and um and so i think that it came from that i think um i didn't realize i was being resourceful i think i was just surviving um trying not to go crazy um but you know, it's easy for me to look back on it and and see that all these paths led back to me being creative in some way. I didn't see that at the time. Yeah, hindsight's obviously what everyone says is, is, is great. But but it's it's the it's the idea that you keep moving forward. And I you do, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time, I think leading into those moments of awkwardness and what feels like you're being a failure is is what, you know, to people in my classes often tell me that and they're only 14, 15. I think, goodness, you've got your whole life ahead of you. If you feel like a failure now, you know, and I think this is an important message really that each experience of, of failure or not getting where we want to by a certain age that we think is you know defines us as failures isn't at all scripted it's it's a social conditioning that we've somehow put on ourselves and, and whether it's cultural or or just because we're from a capitalist society i don't know but i feel that we have to let go of these barriers and these notions of, of telling our children that by 16 they need to know their GCSEs, by 18 they need to know what university they're going to and all the rest of it falls, you know, it, it can fall into place at different times for different people. And I'm going to ask you, because who knows, I might be lucky enough to also interview Mira, which would be brilliant, but I, I would love to know what you think her role in doing the similar thing to you in a parallel world, but as a female was like for her i, I mean I, I, we can maybe do a quiz afterwards and see if you actually get <laughs> get the right answer or not but what do you think mira would say to the, the journey that she had was it different even more difficult for her i mean because she was a female i think that's a, it's it's a really interesting comparison actually because uh yes i think that being 
uh, young and female and being young, female and of color, of being a minority of some kind, you, the odds are stacked against you um, because you're battling society. You're not just, you know, you, it's difficult enough when you're young, it's difficult enough when you're older to battle your own self-doubts. I mean, you know, we go into each new thing thinking, can I do it? You know, am I able to do it? What if I don't do it? What if I can't do it? What will people think? What will kind of, what will be my life after that? And that's hard enough, you know, to have society telling you, uh, you know, that's not, I don't think that's possible, um, is, is another, you know, added layer. And the interesting thing about Mira's journey is that um, although she had those obstacles, she too would could look at film and theatre and television and books at that time, uh, particularly uh, in the UK, and not see anybody who looked like her doing that. Um, was that the her parents absolutely supported her? They absolutely kind of said so. She she had in terms of uh, uh, the the background to her journey was very different to mine, and so she went from doing you know her her parents who I think were super enlightened uh, said to her what are you interested in studying study that study that. I think partly she didn't have the pressure of being the male future provider. So she didn't have that pressure of them saying, no, you've got to be a, a lawyer or an engineer. Otherwise, how are you going to support your family? Uh, because this, the cliched thing in, in that generation was, well, you'll probably marry a, a nice lawyer, lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so in the meantime, study what you want. And so she did. And so she went to university and studied English and drama and got a theatre job, I think, before she'd finished university. And so the, the interesting thing when we talk about uh, our jobs now is that this is, you know, the acting, the writing, of both of which she's absolutely brilliant at and properly acknowledged for. Uh, she's never done anything else. I've done a whole load of other things. So my perspective, yeah, so my perspective on, you know, uh, me in this profession and her perspective on her in this profession come from very different places. Wow. And okay. We definitely need to get her on to the podcast. Yeah. Now yeah. She, she'll, be, she'll be much smarter and, and nicer than me. I don't, I don't, uh, I totally disagree with that. I meant just to hear this whole other side of her journey because I hadn't appreciated that. Speaking, speaking about this brilliant series, the Goodness Gracious Me series, which I clung on to for dear life when I first moved to London. So this is dating us a little bit, but 2000s, I think. Um, but it was nothing like I'd seen in Canada, definitely, where there were you know loads and loads and loads of Indian people, but nothing of British Asian culture. I remember my dad, if he ever saw um, someone of Indian color or Indian skin on television, a news reporter, and you know, he would ring down the house like something had gone really Same wrong. Here. <laughs> because look, Same here. look who's we on were, TV. Yeah, we would get that thing. And also because uh, at that time there was, there were no, uh, you know, there, you couldn't record it. You couldn't, there were no TiVos. You could, I mean, there was nothing. It was in the moment and there were, it would be like, I don't Do you remember the old Tarzan movies? Yes, yes, right? of course. It would be the equivalent of that. It would be kind of one of my, usually my dad actually, basically doing the, and you know, running down the stairs because there was some Indian in the back of shot. 
I know, I know. And it was to show me that there was an Indian lady on. And we, we giggled about this not long ago because he said to me, and now look, Beta, there's a, there's somebody in the White House. It was the same, you know, he was, it was so sweet. I was so moved the day of the election. You know, he was so thrilled for that thing to happen. Um, but for so many reasons, I think it was this idea that we could look up and, and see people like us in, in and the BBC, nonetheless, which is not a, a small place to see Indian people. But it was a clever program. I mean, it was a success because of the way it dives into challenges and it, the way it looks at conflict and integration between traditional Indian culture and modern British life. But I wonder, how did you find yourself? Were you involved in the writing process? We only did three series uh, of six programs. So there are 18 in total and a, and a few specials. And then it uh, must have been the Kumars that came right after, wasn't it? Yeah, the Kumars was longer, yeah. Um, which was also, I mean, that was the thing that I did completely create. And uh, that also was about preconceptions for me. But with, with goodness gracious me, it was a, it was the producer actually who, who very smartly said, you know, we do not see uh, South Asians on TV. And so, we could do a sitcom where you could have a family or you could have four characters. But those are the, really the, the four characters you'll see every week. If we do a sketch show, we can hit the audience with 100 different characters. And that was a really smart decision because I think we all wanted to do, we wanted to act, you know, one character across a series and stuff. Um, and that was a, a very smart and astute notion. I think at least one sitcom of an Indian family. I think it was about two restaurants that had a, uh, a rivalry uh, that was a few years before us. And I think that ran for one or two series. And uh, preceding us was uh, a show called The Real McCoy, which was the, about the black British experience. And Mira was involved in that show. And, um, but when it came to goodness gracious me, Mira, myself and two other people wrote most of the uh, show. And so when it came to, you know, what characters you choose or what you're trying to say, the primary thing was to be funny. Uh, and the second thing was, again, to play with the preconceptions. So I said, let's not subtitle anything. I, I said, if we used kind of, you know, uh, words that are culturally specific, let the English person who doesn't understand it go and ask an, an Indian or an Asian person what it, what it means. And I remember kind of going to school. I was doing some um, after Goodness Gracious Me. No, it was before Goodness Gracious Me. This is why this came about, was that I did some work with a theatre company and I was just starting before Goodness Gracious Me had arrived on TV. And we were going to schools to perform 40-minute Shakespeare plays uh, to um, kids between seven and 12. And I remember going to the two people and a load of puppets and things like that. And we would do, you know, a Shakespeare play in 40 minutes and then we would talk to them about it. And I went to school, it was just outside Manchester in the north of England. And when we arrived at school in the playground, you could see that all the kids were segregated. You know, the white kids were playing mainly in the middle of the playground and the Asian kids, mostly from a Pakistani or Bangladeshi background in that area, were all around the sides. 
you know, they were playing, but they were, you know, certainly secondary in terms of who occupied the um, playground. And when we went into the halls, the entire school, it was a small school, the entire school was there to watch us do this performance. And I kind of, and we were doing um, The Tempest. That was the play we were doing. Lots of puppets, masks, and so, you know, me and it was one of the girls, we were playing all the characters. And as part of the show, I used to walk in amongst the children who were sitting on the floor and pretend that they were the sea or they were rocks and things like that. And uh, I remember kind of thinking, and I don't know, this wasn't a conscious thought because it just happened in the moment, but I started using some Hindi and Urdu. And by that time, all the kids were laughing because obviously what I was doing was hilarious. And I was using the teachers as props. And of course, the kids loved that because I was embarrassing the teachers and stuff. So I think that they were invested in me as a person at that point. They liked me. You know? um, and when I started using these words, which obviously Shakespeare did not use, so if anybody wants to go and check, um, what I saw, I remember seeing it at the corner of my eye. I saw those same kids, the uh, uh, British kids, the white kids, who had not been talking to their Asian peers, leaning over to the Asian kids and saying, what, what does that mean? And I remember the look on the faces of the Asian kids. And I remember for the first time, they had some small smidgen of power. They had some value all of a sudden. So that was the thing that I remembered when we did Goodness Gracious Me. And I said, don't subtitle. Use the words and let people find out. Let people either understand it by their use by the context of the use or go and ask somebody and that's what happened but it is it is empowering each other right and giving them giving yourselves a sense of community a sense of as you called it right at the start your tribe and having that support system connection yeah absolutely and yeah i, I am i am i'm half a millimeter from gratitude all the time you know i've kind of met so many of my heroes uh, you know, watching movies and, you know, either actors or some of whom have become friends. And and that's ludicrous to me because I think about being 14 and thinking, that's not possible. It's not possible that I'm going to, you know, meet the Beatles, which I met three of them. I didn't meet four of them. Um, or, you know, comedy heroes or, you know, um, I got to be friends with Hugh Jackman, which was kind of, that's ludicrous. I mean, it's it's nuts. Speaking of Hughes, the other one that you and I personally have loved and adored from far is Hugh Grant. How, how is it working with Hugh Grant? I know he was your your your, your colleague on, on a few things, but particularly Paddington? Paddington 2. Uh, Paddington 2 is the only thing I've worked with him on. And I have to say that he improvises comedy better than anyone I've ever met. He was absolutely, I think he's fantastic in the part. I think it's one of the best things not only that he's done, but I've, any actor in that kind of film has done. He said, you know what? He said, I, I have a friend in Australia and we used to call him Umar. He said, he's not Indian, he's white, but he said he, he kind of shared so many traits with the character that you did in your show that we just nicknamed, nicknamed him Kumar. And I said, oh, that's really funny. And he said, oh God, is it all right if we get a selfie? Him. And it was kind of Hugh Grant's asking me for a picture. <laughs> this, is, this is 
crazy. But so my thing is, you know, in terms of, I mean, Roger Moore, who played James Bond in the 70s and 80s, yeah, I was a huge fan of his and I became friends with him. And, um, and Alan Alder, who was in a series called MASH, which is just one of the best programs ever made, uh, who's in his 80s and one of the most life-affirming people. The thing that, that I loved about all of them in terms of becoming friends and getting to know them was that they all were passionately curious. In their 80s, they were curious. And um, so when I think about, you know, particularly career stuff now, and jobs I don't get, or opportunities, uh, I, you know, I'm not given, or I just think I'm, I'm, fr I'm just friends with Roger Moore. I, I cannot be, because the, the, the point, even now, in my 50s, if I don't get a job, that little voice that says failure is not far. But then the voice that says, but if you're a failure, how could you be friends with Roger Moore? How could you have... I mean, how could you be on a podcast with Ramita Anand? That's going to be that's going to be added to the list. Thank you. Right after Roger Moore, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before before Roger Moore, uh, but do you know what I mean. It's suddenly you kind of go. Actually, my the sense of self, I realized, to a from a positive place. Goodness gracious me, was was fairly successful, and it was the first big thing I did. And people who were um, of my age but had started. 14 years before me, always used to say to me, well, it's all right for you. You didn't struggle. You know, I've had to struggle. And I'd say, yeah, I haven't had to struggle in the way that you have. My struggle was the 14 years that I desperately wanted to do it and didn't feel I could. Um, but the other thing that I get from that, which I tell the students at Sussex, actually, is that two things, actually. One is that in the private language we use in our heads is really important. You know, because it's a lot of the time, you know, teenagers particularly who feel a failure don't say that to somebody. You know, they don't say to someone, you know what, I was thinking today, I feel like a failure today. You don't, It's just something that's in your head. But the word rotates and goes around in your head all the time. And it just gets reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. And so the language that we use privately is really important. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, you know, if we... If something doesn't work out in the way that we think or we hope it'll work out, that's what we call a failure, right? And when it does work out, we call it a success. But and at that point, when that happens, we define ourselves that way. You know, I'm a failure because this thing failed. What else could I be? And, uh, and the other thing that I tell them is don't define yourself by a bad day or a bad week or a bad month, or a bad year. I had a bad decade, but I came out of it. Um, and because it's, you know, the thing that you do from it, I, there is no experience that is wasted, right? And so for me, what I've learned to do is to say, if I'm not enjoying something, what am I learning from it? That's it. Those are the two things. I either enjoy it uh, or learn from it. That's it. It's none, none of it is a failure. You know, all those things that, and I felt a failure, you know, for five years after I was on TV because it was so in my head from so young uh, that it took me time to kind of like accept that I wasn't a failure. But I kind of realize, again, when you're 14 or 15, 
you don't have the life experience to know this necessarily, uh, generally. But I look back and I think, actually, all of that stuff that I thought was failure has helped me. It's all helped me. It's helped me to where I am now. It's helped me to be kinder to people, to to be empathetic in the right way towards people, but also all these things about having a positive language in your head, talking to people, are things I learned from that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's a huge learning from for all of us, even if you can do it when you're a teen, I think it's it's incredibly empowering. I think even as adults, we need to unlearn to learn. I think that's the kind yes, of message that's a that very I- good, uh, term, yeah. Yeah, I try and speak about that even for us as parents and how we speak to our, our children. I think the parenting can be such a tricky job. And, and often we might say, when I'm a parent, I won't be doing that. I'm not when I'm a parent, I won't be doing that. And then there I am hearing voices in my head that I'm sure I told myself I would never repeat to my children just because I, I had them told to me. But yeah, I think this the voices in your head is, a, is incredibly important. I, I did a podcast with Mo Gaudat, who's the guru of, of happiness. Um, and he talks about the, the success failure equation, exactly that, setting it by the expectations that haven't been met, and then you're a failure. But who set this in the first place? But also in terms of, Ramita, in terms of kind of, you know, what defines success as well, you know, that because most of the world defines it as the job you get and how much you earn. And it's, it's and the problem with, uh, attaching it to a figure is that figures go up and down you know does that mean that when you the day you've got money you're fantastic and great and successful and when you haven't all of those things go away i mean that doesn't make any sense to me and so it, you know defining success or changing that definition becomes really important and the other thing in terms of my own journey is that the thing that we are generally scared of is the unknown we don't know what's going to happen. And we fill that, I don't know what's going to happen with dark stuff. We know we go, because because if you say, I don't know what's going to happen, I think it's going to be great. You you sound like a lunatic to most people. You know, somebody saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I've got to be prepared for it. You know, which is a pessimistic view. The person will always say, I'm being a realist. I'm being a realist. And I look at my life and I go, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, I was... Uh, I really wanted to act. I couldn't act. I did A-levels that I hated. I then did, it took me down a path that I didn't particularly want to go down to. And then at 30, I was um, in litigation. And by 33, I was on TV. At what point could I have predicted that? It was always, it was always sitting there in the future. But, so that's the other thing is that when you don't know about the future, it spiritually being open is the healthiest place to be. And so, yes, I know that, you know, um, difficult things can come up. I know that. But I also know that difficult things may not come up. You're right in line. It's like I told you all about the Elevate Mentorship Program before you came on. You're you're speaking my language, Sanjeev. You really are. Um, so you're a wonderful success now. You've, you've completely nailed it. You're a, the, a famous comedian within the British community, at least. You were um, well known for all your comedy. Did you then ever get frustrated as being typecast as a comedian? I would just love to know, how does one then continually, because your roles have been so diverse uh, in, in many respects, but did you have to fight that? Was that difficult? It still is, because you're still battling a preconception. You know, people uh, saw me do comedy and they didn't think I could do anything else. And, and then it was kind of, well, kind of Asian comedy british asian comedy he could do you know they 
people feel much more com comfortable by putting other people into smaller and smaller boxes because the smallest box you can squeeze somebody else into, you don't have to think about them again. You know, this person is this and that's all they are. And then you don't have to go back to it. You know, whereas people are complex and we change and we evolve and suddenly you have to deal with well, who's this person who was yesterday doing comedy and today is doing drama. Well, now what am I supposed to think? You know, so the, so you're constantly battling it. And so I'm still battling the the um, preconception of what people think I'm capable of. And part of that is a challenge, you know. And But at the same time, I'm so, so fortunate to be doing what I love doing that that's part of the deal. And I go, okay, if part of me kind of doing what I love doing and interacting with other people that I connect with who are creative and, and smart and have these kind of conversations with you, then yeah, all right, okay, I'll take that challenge. That's fine. In the grand scheme of things, that's not the biggest thing in the world because I see kind of most of the world having to go to work, earn a living. Yeah, I am, I am, I'm half a millimeter from gratitude all the time. I think you've left us with a incredibly inspiring message on how we can try and navigate that voice, how we can try and pursue our dreams, which is one of the biggest messages. And, and like you said, right at the start, that one of hope and keeping that up, no matter how old you are, where you are, if you've got something you believe in and you're passionate about it, then don't give up on your on yourself. 100%. The only thing that I would add, add to that, I mean, obviously, I can carry on talking for another 20 hours is that um is to start thinking about if you're you know 11 12 13 14 doesn't matter start just just think about the people around you and the you know things around you and just try to have a think about whether they you think they're good for you or not because toxicity is something that grows and the earlier you can get so i you know absolutely understood there was a point where i understood that actually being surrounded by positive people kept me positive. You know, other people who wanted me to feel like a failure were not good for me. Get rid of them, you know, and and engage, you know, engage with people with posit who are positive and engage with positivity as a mindset. Definitely. I think there's a there's a, something there to be said to people that we don't fill us with the right feelings and noticing them is important. I think that's part of the mentorship program as well, is really sitting with the, whatever your emotion you're going through and asking yourself what what where was the trigger for this and where, what's causing me to feel like this? How can I work around it? There are certain things we can't get rid of. If you don't like your teacher, you don't like your teacher, but um, it doesn't mean that you can't find ways around it. And I think that that um... what about in your head saying, what would your best friend say to you? And that's when you start being kinder to yourself. Exactly. You wouldn't give yourself the same advice, which is important. Yeah, so true. So true. Sanjeev, this has been such a delight. I mean, I feel like I could ask you so many more stories. Would you like to end on a note of comedy? Would you like to end with a with a sketch? Would you like to tell me something funny in one of your best impersonations? Or or, or do you want to leave it at, at the wonderful, uplifting message? Now, now you've put me on the spot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm doing the Indian thing, saying, so "Come on, I want you to perform for everybody else on the spot." A, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, um, we were all required to do party pieces. Yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> family you gatherings and things, and free entertainment. <laughs> it was kind of yeah. Get up and you. So you know, you did that until you were about 
14 or something. They would say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on. sing a song, sing a song, sing everybody, everybody's waiting. You know, the pressure. <laughs> and then, you know, and somebody else would do a little dance and somebody would do a puck or something. And then at 15, you kind of say, they say, well, what do you want to be? And you go, I think I'm quite like to be a dancer or a singer. And they react like you've just said you want to be a pimp. Like kind of like, wait a minute, for 12 years, you've made me get up and perform to these, you know, extended gathering things. Now suddenly it's like, you do. you want to be a prostitute? It's kind of like, what? <laughs> I, it's just you can't win uh, it's preposterous didn't win. <laughs> i didn't win. didn't win thank you so much sanjeev for being with us i cannot thank you uh for your time enough i know what a busy person you are it's been wonderful to be able to reconnect with you and share this journey of yours with all my listeners i urge everyone to follow suit and take some inspiration from sanjeev's incredible journey and let's all commit to staying passionate about what we want to do. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.